0: I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting. From left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is, and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and to hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media and a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions and not be compromised by financial or political limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But what that means is I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. Some of you may have noticed I'm no longer posting full video versions of these interviews on YouTube. This is because YouTube dings my channel, gives me warnings, demonetizes me, and has shadow banned me, in fact, for talking about things like gender identity ideology, the COVID mandates, Justin Trudeau's policies, and sharing other views deemed unspeakable by social media giants like YouTube and Meta. I decided to stop providing YouTube with all of my content when the result is punishment and erasure. So if you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at the Same Drugs, wish to support my work and access full interviews, a really great way to do that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, or on Substack at www.MeganMurphy.ca where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode, can access subscriber-only video content, and engage with the comment section, subscriber-only chats and AMAs, and keep up with my writing as well. You can, of course, follow the podcast on Spotify, and support the podcast directly there by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And finally, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You may have seen me in a very stylish shirt with that very timeless message online, and you can get your very own at the Same drug store on Teespring or just by visiting MeganMurphy.ca and clicking the shop button where you can also find a few of my other favorite things and more merch. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Cynthia Overgard, a hypnobirthing instructor and host and producer of the Down to Birth podcast. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to see your face. We've been in touch a little bit online um, and I have about a million questions for you, which I'm sure we won't get through all of them, but I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Thank you, Megan. I'm so very happy to be here. And I, I knew one day we would meet and have this conversation and here we are. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity.
0: I've been listening to your podcast down to birth just recently to prep for this conversation um and i've subscribed and i'm going to keep listening like i it's not it's funny because i'm not i'm not a mom i don't plan to be a mom but i find that issues surrounding birth and motherhood and babies are you know i mean they're incredibly important for i what i hope are obvious reasons <laughs> um but you know, I just, there's so many things that are going on right now that are so troubling to me in relation to birth and, you know, the birthing community. I don't know what you call it, but Mm -hmm. why don't we start by talking a little bit about how you got here? As I understand it, you came from the corporate world and now you're doing something quite different.
1: (laughs) Yes, I certainly am. I, started working out in my life. I got my MBA in finance and I, and GE is who recruited me to Connecticut. So I went from New York City to Connecticut in my mid twenties. They hired me and I worked there in several positions and I resigned and I took a position at MasterCard International in Westchester, New York as the vice president of North and South America counterparty risk. So I was in risk management and I had a very exciting corporate job. I traveled a lot all over the world, even Asia, even though I wasn't responsible um, for that region. And um, I was very fulfilled. And around the same time, I began a professorship at University of Connecticut, which I love. That's where I really discovered my absolute love of teaching, even though um, I've taught various topics in my life. I absolutely loved it. And I stayed at UConn for 23 terms, about 10 years, through the years of building my family with my husband. So what happened was I was a young woman, married. I got pregnant and I learned early in my pregnancy that first of all, I faced a really intense fear of giving birth, which is the norm because we are subjected to a lot of negativity around birth for justifiable reasons and some non-justifiable reasons. We're mainly led to believe it's inherently dangerous and painful And in fact, the industry is causing so much harm. So it's hard for women to tease that out. I was seeing a doctor who was very high intervention, and I started educating myself on the side. And eventually, midway through pregnancy, I fired her. I choose that language because I always want to remind women that we hire our doctors, and therefore we can fire our doctors. So I fired her simply by (laughs) virtue of not ever showing up again to another prenatal and finding somewhere else to give birth. And when I made that decision uh, with my husband to birth in a birthing center instead, I really faced that fear of childbirth itself. And I thought, like, oh, God, now what have I done? Now I have to have a natural birth. And I'm really not sure I wanted this. I know what I was running away from, but I wasn't so sure about what I was running toward, which was a commitment to a natural birth. And through, I think I just took my years of reading and research and hard work and just started to apply it to learning about this industry. And I ended up preparing myself for birth and having like a spectacularly simple, beautiful, fulfilling birth experience with my son. The entire labor was three hours from beginning to end. Both of my children, I I later home birthed my daughter, both were born in water and they weighed nine and nine and a half pounds each. And after birthing my son, I just thought I came so close to having a different experience. My doctor was trying to prep me psychologically for a C-section. She literally cited 12 reasons why she, quote, liked giving them. So there was a lot of rhetoric and very little education. She said things like, I don't like if the mother is too small, if she's too big, if she goes into labor late, if she goes in early. And she actually used her pinky to draw on my lower abdomen where she would be placing the incision and said, Cynthia, a bikini will cover up the scar later. This is what she said to a healthy, thriving, low-risk young woman. Yeah. So I had to leave her and I ended up with this incredibly fulfilling, beautiful experience that changed my life. And when I had that experience, for whatever reason, I just couldn't stop reading about birth. I started publishing in the field. I would talk to everyone and anyone about birth. And I started to care a lot about other women's experiences because I recognized this would have been devastating to me if I didn't feel at peace with my birth experience. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it is devastating to women. What I learned in that journey is that we are literally the most dangerous place in the world to give birth in the whole industrialized world. That's crazy. In America? In in America. So what you tell me, how many American women will know this fact that she is statistically safer flying on a plane and going to Moscow, (laughs) going to Turkey, going to Egypt Literally every Eastern and Western European nation and nations in Africa, on every continent, there are countries that are statistically safer than the United States. Now, that's hard for us to believe because we always hear the rhetoric that this is the best healthcare in the world, the best healthcare in the world. Is it in some ways? Yes. If you're going to have a premature baby, heaven forbid, at 28 weeks, this is a wonderful place to be. The problem is. That with with this rising maternal mortality rate we have in the United States, unnecessary medical intervention has been identified as the major contributor to that trend. We're the only nation out of all these dozens of nations that has become progressively more dangerous since the mid 80s. -hmm. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to tell everyone what happened in the 80s that changed everything. In the 1980s, that's when the cesarean rate started to increase. For decades and decades, it was always between two and four and a half percent. In 1970, it became the first year in the United States that the cesarean rate became a whopping five percent, one in 20 women going into major surgery in order to give birth. Now, why does this matter? Because when a woman has a cesarean section, she's at least five times as likely to die as when she has a vaginal birth. Now, obviously it's a life-saving surgery when it's genuinely needed, but the vast majority of the time, it turns out it's not genuinely needed. And even ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have have, um, corroborated those figures. They're they're saying this is a much more dangerous way to give birth. So in 1970, it was 5%. In 1980, it was immediately 10% because we hit that critical mass. Society got more comfortable with it. Obstetricians became more comfortable with it. And the World Health Organization tried to announce to all the nations, United States, what are you doing? Be careful. And while the World Health Organization was recognizing our increasing cesarean rate, something remarkable happened in Congress. Ronald Reagan was president. It was around 1986 to 1987 is when this happened. And I want to remind everyone and, or tell everyone that in, this, in the 80s, the corporate tax rate, the federal corporate tax rate was between 46 and 51 percent. Now, in, I believe in George Bush Jr.'s years, it went down to like 30 something percent. I think I don't remember exactly. Might mm-hmm. be run, I might be confusing it with the personal tax rate, but it was in the 30 something percent, 35 ish. Donald Trump, it went down to 21 percent. It used to be 46 to 51 percent. So corporations didn't like very much, obviously, that they had to hand over half of their profits to taxes. Well, what happened in the 80s was that the pharmaceutical and hospital lobby partnered and appealed to Ronald Reagan's Congress with a brilliant idea that changed the United States completely. They said, we really don't like paying all these taxes as hospitals. Can you give us the status of a nonprofit. Can we let ourselves be called nonprofits so that we don't pay federal income tax? Mm -hmm. However, please give us a loophole. Let our executives make multi-million dollar salaries. Let us have multi-million dollar advertising budgets. Let us pay corporate bonuses. So what appears to be a .org is in fact a .com and the problem with that is conflicts of interest abounded. Yeah. So what happened with that cesarean rate, which was 10% now in the 80s, that's exactly when things got worse for women. The safest year to give birth in this country was 1987, and we've been downhill ever since. So in the early 90s, it became not 1 in 10 women. Immediately, it was 1 in 5 women going into surgery for birth. By the late 90s, it was 1 in 4 women, and today it's 1 in 3. And in affluent metropolitan areas, it's 1 in 2 We have consistently increasing maternal mortality rates to show for it, while every single other nation, literally every other industrialized nation has improved in the opposite direction over the
0: same years. This is crazy. Can you explain what the incentive is there? Why are women being pushed in America to get C-sections? I'm assuming... That lots of women have an experience like the one you did, wherein they were told by their doctor that they, you know, that maybe this would be an easier process, maybe a better outcome. Maybe the doctor said what what she said to you, which is, "I like these better." Um, what's happening there?
1: Well, what I just gave you was a whole bunch of facts, and all I have for you now are mostly theory that I think about all the time, and a little bit of fact. So it's factual to say that um, the norm is for our hospitals to have revenue targets. They literally have shareholders. They owe them profits. And there is pressure. The system is the problem. I know that sounds like something we hear all the time. But the setup is the problem. The system is the problem. The hospital administrators do put pressure on doctors to drive up the numbers. However, there's also a culture in maternal health, in obstetrics, of, you know, (sighs) of ego, Mm. of threats, of pressure, of coercion, tremendous coercion, Um, the overuse of Pitocin, which is a very dangerous drug and should be used very sparingly. A study was done in 2007 that showed 97% of the time in the United States, Pitocin has been used off label. That means for non-FDA approved purposes. It's been around for decades and to this day, it hasn't been FDA approved for the elective induction of labor but they're doing this to millions of women a year. And there's a list of dozens of possible risks and side effects to mothers and babies. So mm-hmm. it's this culture of normalizing intervention. And that's that's another part of it. Um, I find it fascinating that the United States, it's a very unique country in many ways. And in one way, it's very fascinating that we have the highest obesity rates, the highest rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, childhood cancer, Hmm. and somehow by some fascinating cultural miracle, we have taken arguably the youngest, healthiest segment of any society, our young pregnant women, and we have converted them into becoming the top revenue producer in hospitals despite that there are all these sick people all over the country driving up revenue as well, whether Perfect. justifiable or not. That's, it's fascinating that how do we convince young, healthy women, the vast majority of them, not the few who need intervention and benefit from it, how do we convince a society that they need this intervention? And that's where the fear comes in. That's where the rhetoric comes in, the misinformation, because women believe that they're safer in, under those conditions. In some cases, and in other cases, they don't know how to stand up to it because it's intimidating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And because I think women have learned throughout the courses of their lives that they don't understand their bodies, um, and so they have to hand them over to the medical establishment. You know, from Mm -hmm. the time where girls were told that we're essentially too irresponsible Mm -hmm. to control our own fertility, right? Right. Um, so we have to go on the pill for example. Mm -hmm. Um, so it makes sense that by the time you would get to the point where you were pregnant or you were planning to get pregnant, um, that first of all, as you said earlier, we're, we're really, really afraid of birth. Um, I for sure have been or was my, my whole life. There's other reasons why I didn't want to have children, but you know, to me, I just thought, Why would any woman do this? This seems like the scariest, (laughs) worst thing in the entire world. Like, I totally spent my whole life being terrified of this prospect. Um, That's normal. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, now, of course, there's women like yourself and and Mary Lou Singleton and Isabella Melbourne um, who are trying to break that spell and say, you know, like – birth is not this, this terrifying, horrific thing.
1: Well, it, 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 here's, here's the thing. My passion and my interest in this work is that what I long for above all is for women to feel at peace with their birth outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I, and when a woman is satisfied with having a surgical birth because she knew she needed it, and she was treated with respect, and she was part of the decision-making, it actually can be a deeply gratifying experience she's at peace with and grateful for. But what we can have is women who feel robbed of what could have been a better experience. Now, childbirth is not inherently, it has not been designed by nature to be inherently painful. Mammals are giving birth everywhere. Even the mammals who can cry when they're in pain, as a dog can, They're very relaxed when they're giving birth because Mm -hmm. when mammals go into labor, we get by nature's design, we get this flood of endorphins, endorphins, oxytocin, the same hormone we get when we're having sex or have an orgasm or even cuddling or this wonderful hormone we get if we don't intervene, because what's happened for over 3 million years when mammals were giving birth outside, this brilliant design had it such that if the birthing mammal was in labor and experienced a single thought where she felt a predator was nearby. Nature made it so that her thought, her fearful thought would turn off labor. And the way it does that is it turns off the oxytocin, secretes her with adrenaline instead. No mammal can secrete both an endorphin and a catecholamine at the same time. So a woman in labor is getting one or the other, And when women are afraid, they get the stress hormones and it is not comfortable and it's not easy. So that mammal out there senses a predator, one fearful thought, no more oxytocin, the cervix tightens. Yes, it can close once it's opening. The blood rushes to her extremities and the baby is totally safe inside her. It's nature's way of saying, go save your life. The baby's going to be fine. But when a woman enters a hospital and isn't treated with the utmost respect, her body starts to put her into that protection mode. We can't catch up from an evolutionary perspective as quickly as society is moving. We spill mustard on our shirt and we go, and we go into this little brief fight or flight. So with childbirth, we're not there yet where we can even consciously override that system and say, but we're safe here. So we go into that fight or flight and then it isn't that comfortable process, in fact
0: this is so interesting. I didn't know this. Um, And it helps explain why women so often do have traumatic births in the hospital, unfortunately.
1: I think the trauma is usually how they're treated and not from the birth itself. Um, Mm. Part of the work I do in addition to teaching couples um, physiologic birth education, which I do on a regular basis still, in addition to my podcast, is that, that I do birth story processing sessions with women and with my co-host on the podcast. We do that together with women. And um, they, they have almost nowhere to go to anyone who understands the emotions around giving birth. Mm-hmm. The self-blame, the guilt, the rage, the resentment, the I should have known better, I shouldn't have let them do this, I shouldn't have let them do that. And their suffering is so extraordinary. And this couple lives with it at home, like they just quietly live with this postpartum woman who's crying or enraged for months, if not years after giving birth. This isn't women being dramatic. It's devastating to not being treated with respect when you feel your life and your baby's life is at stake.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, why, why is it that a C-section, again, I, I have so many questions for you. I'm so glad you're here. But why, what's wrong with getting a C-section? Let's just say that. I mean, putting aside a woman doesn't want it and she's sort of pressured to do something that she doesn't want, I'm sure a lot of people assume, as I once did, you know, I thought if I ever give birth Sure, maybe I would want a C-section. That seems way easier. Like knock yep. me out, take yep. the baby out. Yep. There's no tearing. You know, yep. it's faster. Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. What's the problem?
1: Okay, that's the that's the smart question to ask at this point in the conversation. Um, and I preempted that in one of the articles I published years ago. After I gave some, I, I gave some background in the article. I I said. This is not just about vaginal birthing for the joy and gratification of it, though that should not be discounted. Vaginal birthing is significantly safer for the mother and baby. So for a mother, she's at about five times the risk of mortality if it is a surgical birth. This is no casual option. We shouldn't allow, we shouldn't have doctors saying, hey, if you want a C-section, that's fine. They should say, wait a second, let me talk Mm -hmm. to you. How come that is? Why do you want a C-section? You don't need one. You're significantly safer. Here we are in the nation with the highest industrialized world's mortality rates. Are you, Let me talk to you about the risk before we do that. That becomes the safer way to give birth when she actually does have a risky situation. Transverse baby, placenta previa. It's a blessing of an option when we need it. For the baby, the adverse outcomes, according to World Health Organization statistics over the years, ranges between 400% and a 1,000% the likelihood of an adverse outcome when the baby is born by C-section. Not to mention the baby's immune system is subpar with the C-section. Not to mention what that does to postpartum bonding, how it affects breastfeeding rates, that a woman who has a baby by C-section, this is going to come as a surprise to you, Megan, has far worse pelvic floor wellness after her birth than the woman who has a vaginal birth, even a woman with a significant tear. Counterintuitive because the pelvis is connected to the entire core and they cut through all those muscles. So when women have a C-section, they don't understand why they have all these pelvic floor issues.
0: Because that's probably what they were trying to avoid in part.
1: You know, this idea that
0: they'll give birth and they'll be all stretched out.
1: let me, let me tackle that a little bit. It's easy to believe that the majority of cesarean sections are happening because women want them. I assure you, it's right. single digits. They've done some studies on this. It's single digits, the women who want them. Very few women want C-sections. Some do. That is true. But it's the single digits. The vast majority are getting them and cried going in. They didn't want it. They, the number one reason for C-section in this country is a, is a bogus um, diagnosis called failure to progress. Uh, it just didn't happen in time. Yep, yep, I don't know. Your body just isn't doing it. Well, there's no correlation whatsoever between the duration of a woman's birth and the outcome of the, the duration of her birth, birth at the outcome of her birth. There's no correlation. So a 35-hour labor is just as safe as a five-hour labor, but they're cutting off women at In some hospitals, 10 hours. That's it. Your body didn't do it. And now they take her life and put it at risk and her baby's life. That's the top reason for C-section in this country, which is the good news, because that's the one we can eradicate if we educate women enough. You don't need to go in. That isn't a medical indication. The number two reason for cesarean section in this nation is fetal distress, which is practically caused by hooking up women to electronic fetal monitors and putting them on their backs to give birth. So right. we can dramatically reduce that one. We can do so much. So it's a, re, it's, a, it's a systemic problem, it's a cultural problem. And I really believe the only way to change it is with women, with individual women going in and saying, nope, that's not gonna be me, I'm doing this
0: differently. Right, and I think what I've understood about these increasing rates of C-sections is at least in part that it's because it's financially beneficial for the hospital to get women in and out as quickly as possible.
1: So I think they
0: don't want the long labors and this is a way to avoid it.
1: My own doctor who I fired told me I had to give birth in 10 hours or less. And I said, (laughs) I don't understand. I read that the average duration of active labor alone is 14 to 16 hours What part has to be 10 hours or less? And she said the whole thing. And I said, how is that statistically even possible? And I said, what if I labor at home for six hours and I come in? How much time? I don't even like this language anymore, and I'm sorry that I ever said it. It was not empowered language. I said, if I labor at home for six hours and I come in, how much time do I get? Now, women are actually, they're the ones in control. and I didn't know it at the time. She said, you get 10 hours. I thought, wait a second. That's odd. I said, What if I labor at home for six hours? She doesn't care if I come in. What if I labor at home for 24 hours and I come in? <laughs> she said, You get 10 hours. I said, What if I'm out to dinner with my husband in a restaurant? I go into labor, come right in. And she said, Of course, you get 10 hours. So she's not remotely concerned with how long the labor lasts, but how long we're in that room exactly as you said.
0: And is it true that if a woman has a cesarean section, she can't give birth naturally after that.
1: No, all research shows that a woman is always safer with a vaginal birth, even if she's had two, three, four C-sections. Statistically, she and her baby remain safer having a vaginal birth.
0: That's Um, interesting because that's not what women are told. That's right. This is just because women tell me this, like, oh, I had a C-section, so... I got pregnant again i had to have a c-section
1: that's a doctor seizing an opportunity that's completely non-evidence-based now in the 70s and 80s they did tell women that once a c-section always a c-section my very close friend and mentor is a very famous author midwife named nancy Weiner, and she coined the acronym vbac vaginal birth after cesarean and she's attended thousands of births and she's published multiple books on the topic a woman is safer having a vaginal birth now they're going to be told the risk is uterine rupture by going for that vaginal birth. But what no first time I'm ever hears is that she too is at some risk of uterine rupture, but they're both under 1%. They're very low no matter what. So is it really in the woman's best interest to have a repeat C-section? It's not in hers or her baby's. And this isn't for me to say how she feels satisfied giving birth. That isn't my role. My job is to teach women their rights and their options so they're at peace with the choice they make. I don't presume to think anyone should give birth the way I did. It, it just pains me to think of how women are suffering and hurting and regretting after they give birth. We change after we give birth. We, we, we completely change. And the question
0: is, how will this birth change you? Because it will. I was talking about this coincidentally with Isabella Melvin on our live stream last night. And then I heard you discussing it on one of your podcasts that I was listening to today. This phrase that I think was invented relatively recently. um, And that's all births are natural. When did you first hear that?
1: Look, you know, we're in a really strange time right now. We're going to get into some of that. But there is there's a movement. I think
0: it was maybe it was possibly an interviewee on one of your podcasts. May I don't have remember been that coming that up. said it.
1: No, it was- no. I mean, it, it, my, I, it wasn't me that said it. I mean, it's we we try to use language that that. No,
0: you didn't say it. It was it was the interviewee or whoever was critical of the phrase. So oh, she was yeah. saying, so she had read this phrase, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure it was an interviewee and yep. she had read this phrase yep. in an article like in the New York Times or something like that. And she was like, no, that's not true. I don't accept that.
1: Yes, I mean, the, the here's the thing. It, all women give birth to their babies, whether it's by C-section or not. We should never say a doctor delivers a baby because they don't, they attend the birth. And it's the la- language is so important. Doctors don't deliver babies they deliver their own babies. They, if they have ba- children, they, they delivered their babies by C-section, vaginally. But when we start to say, um, all births are natural, damn it. Okay, fine. Like That's society's way of saying, don't feel good or bad based on how you give birth. Um, it's always society's way of saying, don't judge. I've, I've never felt judgment within my heart in my work. And I feel a deep passion and I have very strong opinions and a lot of knowledge. But I, I fear what happens when we say that is we, we use that as this, this veil to not educate women on the risks. By law, we're supposed to tell them the risks. This is voluntary informed consent laws. We're not supposed to do anything to them without telling them the risks and the alternatives. It's happening all the time. They're, they're doing the same in the breastfeeding industry. They're saying fed is best. And it's this way of saying, don't feel guilty if you're not breastfeeding. You're feeding your baby. You're a good mother. Sure, but also don't be dishonest with the public, especially in this country where we literally have corn syrup solids in our formula as compared to good quality formula in other countries. So don't gaslight everyone is the thing. This is not going to save lives. This is not helping. So that's why we have that aversion to language like that, that all births are natural. It's like, look, it's it's her legitimate choice to have a C-section, 100% but don't we don't have to create a story around it that isn't accurate. Let's yeah, talk I more mean, about the
0: risks. I guess it like it's it's trying to say sort of it's all good, right? Either way is good. These are all good ways. No way is better than another way, and that's really not true.
1: The most painful thing you can say to a woman who's disappointed or devastated that she had a C-section. The worst thing you can say to her is but you have this beautiful, healthy baby. Because she's the last person who needs a reminder that she has a beautiful, living, healthy baby. And now all you've achieved is making her feel guilty that she feels dissatisfied with an incredibly intense physical, mental, and emotional experience that she alone endured. So that's not acknowledging her disappointment if she feels disappointment. And when we do that because we're trying to help. You have this beautiful baby. It's like, can I also, can I be deeply grateful? And can I also feel disappointed that this didn't go the way I wanted it to go? And for some women, they're at peace with it, of course. But for so many, they're pressured into it, bullied into it. They're given misinformation and lies. And then later they find out it wasn't true. It's difficult. And the anguish they feel is indescribable when they have doubt later.
0: Mm. I want to talk about formula. Um, It's, you mentioned that, that little saying, fed is best. Um, But it sounds like, it sounds as though formula is being pushed on mothers unnecessarily. I don't know the whole history or story of formula. You probably know a lot more about this than I do, and I'd love to hear about it. But, you know, I think that probably for almost all of human history <laughs> until very recently, it was just assumed that you breastfeed your baby, there weren't any other options, of course, um, for most of history, um, and it would have been assumed that, of course, breast is best, of course, breastfeeding, like, I mean, breast milk is is made perfectly for your baby. When When did this start happening where formula was being encouraged or pushed on mothers, and why was that? It was in the
1: 1950s. That's when breastfeeding reached an all-time low, and I'll tell you what happened in the 50s, but I also want to point out, and I know you know this, Megan, from so many other topics, how many roads lead to pharmaceuticals. (laughs) Their, Their lobbyist budget is greater than the GDP of most nations. How many questions are answered by saying, look at the pharmaceutical? So just a quick fun fact before I tell you what happened in the fifties, because that is going to lead to a a very, very interesting part of this discussion later that I know we're going to get into is that the hospital pharmaceutical lobby, they hold each other up. They support each other. They're the ones who appealed together to Ronald Reagan's Congress in the eighties. What they do now is they give hospitals kickbacks for Giving out formula to women. Mm -hmm. So, look, breastfeeding to someone who isn't close to breastfeeding, it only looks like an incredibly beautiful, feminine, fulfilling, gentle, lovely experience. Breastfeeding happened to go well for me. And even in my case, you are wondering every day if you're producing enough. You're leaking through your shirt, you're waking up in the middle of the night, you're, you're, you' know it, it's a, it's a crazy experience. It begins mm-hmm. with it can be painful in the beginning. I mean there's so much to the learning curve is really quite tremendous. It was never difficult through history because women were sitting around together, not alone in their homes with just their partner and on social media. And women were opening they were supporting her, they were touching her breast, they were showing her how to get her baby to latch. We're just telling like I was home with my book. Yeah. Uh, and le- trying to learn on my own. And I didn't even realize I could go to a lactation consultant. So I just, I muscled through and I figured it out and I loved breastfeeding, but what they're doing to women they're, who aren't producing enough and the babies are crying and the babies aren't gaining weight. They give them that formula. And that woman is alone in the middle of the night and it's all she has. And what we really need to do is say, look, this is always an option for you, but what you need is support first. You need education and support first. We have totally siloed healthcare in women's health. When a woman Mm -hmm. gives birth, we should say, now here's the physical therapist who's going to work with you in recovering and restoring your pelvic floor health. Now here's um, a specialist in postpartum work, which is, I'm a specialist in that. And I have a postpartum support group in addition to the other work I do. There's nothing for women and there are so many, and here's your lactation consultant. They go home by themselves with a little bag of products. Who is that serving? Um, If a woman chooses formula, and of course, I've had clients who I completely respect who do, um, they do their research on the formula they want to use because there are literally (laughs) the, the ingredients in some are literally toxic. And they've done studies on this. And some are actually very good quality. And at least a woman can feel so much at peace that she chose the one that makes sense for her and her baby. She can feel good about that choice, not handing one to her and saying, You don't need to do your research. There, you're done. Go. So, it, the lack of support is affecting healthcare as well and mental health. I mean, all of it, it's all connected.
0: Under what circumstances do women choose formula? For m-
1: many women, if not the vast majority of women. It's because A, they had absolutely no support and they stopped because this is not something we can mess around with. Your baby is hungry. Like they need to eat every hour or two. They're eating all the time. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you think you're not producing milk, you must do something. It's a crisis immediately. It's a very special type of, it's a special condition. There's an immediate crisis. So there are those women And there are many women. And in in that category, you have the women who say, my milk never came in. It was day three. And they don't know milk can take five days. In some extreme cases, and it's higher with cesarean births, it can even take six or seven. But they can say, oh, my gosh, my milk didn't come in. And they're not aware they're producing colostrum. And baby stomachs are disproportionately tiny. It's not commensurate and proportionate with our stomachs to our adult size or even a toddler's size. They're born with tiny, tiny stomachs the size of a marble. So when women are feeding their babies, they feel like no milk is coming out because it's only colostrum. And it is, in fact, typically sufficient. The other reason women go to formula is because they've exhausted all possibilities. And it's it, again, it's anguish. They've tried. They've gone to lactation consultant. They've cried. They've worked at it. They've, they've pumped. I mean, what women go through And then they can feel like failures and they're so hard on themselves and they've done so much. They've put so much into it, so much love, so much attention, money, resources, time, effort, only to feel guilty that somehow they failed their baby or their body failed them.
0: Yeah. I've heard that from women that I know, um, that the milk never came. So they had no choice. Um, Is that a thing, you know, does it, does it never come or is it always what you're saying now, which is that sometimes it just takes a while?
1: There's virtually never a time to say always There, anything can happen. There can be legitimate, serious problems with breastfeeding. And just as with birth, these instances are extraordinarily rare. If we really have, if we're really giving women the support that they need, we would see how rare these instances are, Mm -hmm. but women aren't what's in formula i'm no expert in formula i okay. i don't know if i should go down that path i mean there are formula there have been studies they found they found very toxic ingredients including antifreeze in american formulas it's not regulated nobody cares i mean of course i mean syrup, i suppose what i'm, syrup I'm syrup asking
0: foods. is like why is formula not good for babies as opposed to breast milk
1: it's not that it's not good for babies. I, I wouldn't make a claim like that, but there's no question and nobody argues with the fact that breast milk is optimal. I mean, one, I guess, um, interesting example is if you look at breast milk under a microscope, it's filled with white blood cells. So it's, it's living food, like when you eat vegetables, mm-hmm. as opposed to when you eat a dead food. It's living food. And it, it, and for hours that you leave it out, it gets cleaner and cleaner, like it has an antimicrobial property. And when a woman feeds her baby, even for a few days, it's beneficial because that baby gets every antibody to any illness that woman ever had. I mean, it's this beautiful, incredible system happening all over the globe with every mammal. Mm-hmm. So we just want to support that, particularly when that's what that woman deeply longs to experience. We don't want women not to breastfeed because we failed them as a society. And we didn't give them the support and education that they needed.
0: I'm a writer and a podcaster, which means I can't sleepwalk through life. My brain is my most important tool. So not only do I need to keep my energy up, but my mind needs to be sharp. I work for myself, which means I need to self-motivate and make sure I can focus in order to be as productive as I can on a daily basis. Focus is something I've always struggled with. We all know how easy it is to get distracted, especially when you're trying to do a million things at once, so I can't tell you how relieved I was to find Magic Mind. It doesn't replace my beloved wake-up coffee, but I drink it a little later in the afternoon as a pick-me-up to help me stay focused and productive throughout the day. Magic Mind has these things called nootropics, which help improve cognitive function, meaning they boost my attention span, ability to process and learn new information, and improve my notoriously bad memory. Lions mean mushrooms, help reduce anxiety, which is something I work hard to keep in check by living a balanced lifestyle, but of course still pops up from time to time when I'm feeling like I'm not staying on top of my goals. It also helps reduce inflammation, and of course, the matcha in there keeps my energy levels up. If you want to give it a try as a part of your daily routine, go to magicmind.com slash Jan Same Drugs for this month only, and use my discount code, samedrugs 20, to get 75% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one time purchase. This January only start your 2024 New Year's resolutions fully focused. Get one month for free when you're subscribing for three months by going to www.magicmind.com slash Jan Same Drugs, code Same Drugs 20. You are would you define yourself or would you call yourself a hypnobirthing coach or how do you say that? I'm
1: a hypnobirthing instructor. That was the childbirth okay. course I got trained in and I still, I'm teaching a course right now this month. I teach couples live on Zoom. I've taught over 2,000 couples since I started in 2007 when oh. my son was a toddler. So I have I have a tremendous amount of experience being close to women and close to their partners through these years. I had a beautiful center um, in Westport, Connecticut that I closed in 2020. Um, it was a, it was my space alone. It was a free, the only freestanding birth education center in the Northeast, and it was just a wonderful revolving door of couples coming through, taking my classes. And now everything is on Zoom, and it's, it was lucky timing for me because I had just launched my podcast, and now my classes are filled with couples from around the country, and sometimes even other countries, which has been a really beautiful experience because I've now gotten to know couples from all over, not just my local area here in the Northeast.
0: And what is hypnobirthing? The premise
1: of hypnobirthing is very much what I described earlier. It's simply that childbirth is at its most comfortable when the woman is supported and loved and relaxed. Okay. So hypno is the root that means focused and relaxed at the same time. So we all go into that state all the time. Um, and my class, of course, I mean, mine is longer. It's supposed to be a 12-hour class. Mine is 15. I'm so deep in this field. I'm such a researcher. It's a very deep, thorough childbirth education class. I tell my couples by the end of this course, it is very fair to say you'll probably spend the rest of your life knowing more about birth than anyone you ever meet. Um, And we have to. It's crazy, but we we have to. And we can have beautiful, safe, fulfilling experiences here in the U.S. But unfortunately, No one's going to tell us our rights and no one's going to give us our options. We have to do that legwork on our own. We have the right in this country. It's my favorite thing about the United States. We have the right to voluntary informed consent. Now, you know, there are always people trying to take that right from us. It's scary. We've had to fight for that quite a lot. But women have the right to turn down anything during birth. But the medical staff is not going to be the ones to tell her that. Well, that's enough time. Look, if you're not at least this many centimeters, I've got to give you Pitocin. They don't say, look, this is your choice. Um, This is the side effects. These are the risks. This is what you can anticipate. That's what they're supposed to do by law. A study was done on episiotomy when they cut vaginal tissue to make it bigger for the baby to come out, which, of course, no other mammal is doing. Nor needs to do. A study was done in the United States on tens of thousands of women, and they found 73% of the time women were cut without their consent. And that's unlawful in every instance, mm. but culturally it's what's happening. So it continues. It persists.
0: There's a big conversation happening right now in our culture around fertility um, that puts a lot of pl- pressure and blame on women. And in a lot of ways, I think it's helpful because I do think that it's helpful to tell women, for example, you should be thinking about your fertility. If you do want to have kids, you should be doing that when you're at an age where you can get pregnant, not wait too long, not be disappointed, etc., etc. At the same time, I suspect... <laughs> Based on everything that we've talked about today and based on what I know about information given to women about their health and their bodies and their fertility that the messages are way oversimplified um, I, so I, I want to talk to you a little bit about fertility and one of one of again one of the podcasts that I was listening to of yours recently was talking about the fact that Men also play a role in fertility. It's not just about women. But I'm curious to know if a woman is struggling to get pregnant, what are some of the factors that might be at play? What should she be considering? What might she think about doing? And how does the man factor in? Because that's something that we really don't talk about very much.
1: I'm no expert in fertility because my world begins once someone is pregnant. So I've taught tons of couples, of course, who have done IVF, but I I don't want to claim to be an expert in this. I really, I'm not one. And I've interviewed experts on it, and I've learned a thing or two by interviewing them. Um, And it's an emotionally charged topic, and it Mm -hmm. can be highly medicalized, and it can also be natural. Um, So all I have is opinion and, and theories on this. Um, my husband and I didn't, you know, we conceived whenever we tried to conceive and that's the norm for many couples and others try for years. There's no question. Stress is a factor. I know so many couples and so many precious stories of couples who've tried for years and, um, finally decided to adopt. Finally, adoption papers went through and lo and behold, they conceived. Um, there have been studies that show acupuncture can drive up fertility by 75%. My own best friend tried for years to get pregnant. Went to acupuncture. She finally conceived. So stress, diet, health care. Um, yes, the men's health. I, 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 my, my feelings always coming down to what's satisfying and supportive for the woman. Is that what? What is she? Is she going? the medicalized route because of a lack of support without believing that she can modify her health in any way. I mean, sex is supposed to lead to conception by virtue of being fun, playful, oxytocin, connection. And so many women who haven't even tried to conceive yet are already measuring their temperature, checking for when they're ovulating. They're forgetting to just I don't want to say they're forgetting to, but I see this, I hear about it all the time. Like, well, I, I'm going to get my ovulation calendar out. I'm using my app. And I just kiddingly sometimes say like, just go have, just go have sex. just go have fun. Like just go have, go play. <laughs> and, <laughs> and go into it with this trust that this is happening. And if it's what you want with a gratitude, like it's so important. It affects us physiologically how we think and feel. And then of course there are genuine and legitimate fertility issues happening at a higher rate than ever before. Um, you know, and then, then it's a matter of what options those women want to pursue with their partners. And yes, men do have a role in it too. I and mean, it, it also is, is that.
0: Yeah. yeah. So one of the strangest things that I witnessed happening over the past, oh, almost a decade now, probably. And, um, I think I was I was first alerted to it by Mary Lou Singleton again, who is a midwife, of course. And it was this gender-neutral language taking hold within the birthing community, within midwifery. Um, doulas, of course, adopted this as well. And it was so weird to me because I thought, like, of all people <laughs> and of all places, surely... The women who are supporting women in giving birth know that only women can give birth, that this is specifically a female experience. Can you talk about what you've seen going on in in your community, in the birthing community around this sudden change to gender neutral language, the adoption of, you know, um, gender identity ideology within these, these communities? Yeah.
1: I have a lot I can share there because of my work, because of working with couples, but because of my podcast and because of having, you know, I, I yesterday we got over 200 messages just yesterday alone. Wow. So we have, we have a very big pulse on what's going on in this industry. I first became really interested in this topic when I, um, I don't know, maybe four years ago, right around the time I launched a podcast. And I remember I do a lot of research and I remember reading the first thing I ever came across, first time I came across the term birth person. And I just had this really ominous feeling before I understood what it was about. I was like, oh no, like what I could feel whatever this is about. This is not going to be good for women. This is not going to be good for what we're doing here. Um, so about two or three years ago, um, there's a well-known midwife, maybe in her 60s, who speaks at a, on a regular basis at birth conferences. And I learned from her that she was planning to go to this birth conference a couple years ago. And for the first time ever, the coordinators of the conference said, oh, send us your speech. And she thought, oh, that's odd. I'm always invited. I always, oh, sure, here's my speech. They responded and said, you have to remove every single reference to the word mother and to the word breast and to the word woman. You have to replace them with what I call n- neutered terms. We're removing gender from it. I don't call those inclusive terms. Childbirth is inherently exclusive, whether we like it or not, it is. And we can't welcome anyone into it who's not in it. It's, it's childbirth. It's birth. So this whole notion of pretending I don't find to be ethical, kind, intelligent, or benefiting women or babies in any way. So then what started happening from our followers on Instagram at Down to Birth Show is women were telling us stories like, oh, I went to an appointment and the midwife said, is your partner a sperm producer? And they were encountering on occasion the term uterus haver. And they're consistently called birth person. Even when women specifically say, will you please not call me that? They still revert to birth person, which I really find ironic and interesting. And this word has become like the Voldemort term of the end. It's the word that shall not be spoken. Do not say, woman. Do not say it. Because if you say it, you're being hurtful and you're being unkind. It's the word woman. It's the word breast. Now they're using the term chest feeding. Now mm-hmm. even the CDC, and I have a few things to share on CDC, now they're, they're trying to replace the term breast milk with human milk. Don't say breast. Chest feeding is a lie. It isn't true. Birth person is neutering the term, and I can explain the two categories of people that that can serve, but chest feeding it, that, that's not possible. We all have chests and we all men and women have breast tissue. Only breasts can feed a baby. Men cannot. Women can. And the whole notion of supporting, because of course I look at the other side. I've certainly done that before taking a strong position. I, I really explore the other sides of this. What is the argument for this? First of all, it is false. It's a lie. There's no such thing as chest feeding. It just doesn't exist. No one with No one can feed a baby without breasts. But the argument is, goes that it's in support of the women who choose to have a baby, breastfeed their baby, the most maternal thing in the world, yeah. but they don't want to be called woman. So we are all supposed to show our support, not by educating her and giving her the information she needs on using her breasts that she's using to feed her baby. They're saying the way to support her is to, to go along with this, to pretend That's a chest because you want it to be a chest. You don't want to think of your body as you don't want, you want to use your breasts to do the most womanly thing in the world with them, by the way, but you don't want to think of it as a breast. How did it become our responsibility to believe that and to say it as well? What, what, if that, and then the other argument, and this is where it gets very concerning is for the men and the CDC, it now has language supporting this. The men who wish to breastfeed babies and they're taking non FDA approved drugs like Dom Peridone, which was pulled was pulled from the FDA in 2004 because it showed psychological dangers toward the women. They showed it goes into breast milk. It's a very dangerous drug and it's illegal. And they're still saying support the person. So what about this baby now? Yeah. What about this baby now getting this chemical substance? how is this ethical? We're already hurting in this country. We we already have high mortality rates. This doesn't seem kind, ethical, decent, but that's the argument. This is the side of everyone who's saying this is kindness.
0: Right, I mean, it shouldn't be about a man who wants to breastfeed. It should be about what's best for the baby. Can you talk a little bit more about what's happening there? Because we have been seeing that lately and it seems crazy, but it is really happening where males, men are saying, you know, I want to breastfeed and I can breastfeed. Look, I'm lactating. I I want to feed my baby. Yeah, I've seen at this point two videos
1: on Instagram that I wish I hadn't seen because it's just so hard for me to shake. Um, one especially of a man who was you know, in his bed, to full makeup, full wig, full makeup. And he was, had a, a crying baby in his arm and he was complaining that milk isn't coming out. And it's like, you know, you're just thinking like, where did you get this baby? Who, like, who gave birth to this baby?
0: Yeah.
1: Who who is applauding or supporting? This? I mean, the CDC is condoning this. Why? What is that serving? Why? For whom are we doing this? It isn't for the baby. We know this. It, it, it's so dangerous. And why? This isn't going to help society in any way.
0: And what's happening there? Like when a man saying that I can lactate, see, I'm lactating. This is breast milk. These are my breasts. So it's breast milk. What actually is that?
1: He's taking that. He's taking those drugs, those hormones that are not FDA approved mm-hmm. to in attempt to produce something to come out of his chest, but for what? And they have language around this supporting this. And they actually tried to support it with what was the term they used? It shows to validate the person's self-identity. Is that what this baby is here for Mm -hmm. to serve as validating? How did this be? I mean, women get women, women express blood, sweat, and tears for their children, not just for through birth. I mean, it's like, it's, it's motherhood everything is for that child i mean you you go days months without sleeping if they say peep in their sleep you're on your feet your eyes are open if you had 45 minutes of sleep in 24 hours you're on your feet you're on your feet you go get your baby we're the the what we have to do for women is give them more permission to receive because all they do is give in the best interest of their children
0: mm-hmm.
1: this is like you're looking at these things and thinking This isn't the the normal relationship of someone holding a baby. This isn't how it's supposed to go. Those women reaching for formula because their babies are hungry, they're doing that despite their wish to breastfeed because they won't let their baby starve. They won't let that happen. So I'm very concerned about it, and I want to point out the hypocrisy that, and I, I have searched and scoured. I mean, I'm really interested in this. There is not one example that I've ever encountered on the White House website, on the CDC website, or in, in advertising, in men's health, not one example where they're using neutered language. Everything still says men. But with only in women's health is it changing. Only in women's health are we told, change our language, neuter it, include it. Emily Oster is a very famous author with a very big following. I looked pulled up all her articles. She uses the term mother at times, but she uses birth person very, very often. And um, has an article, in fact, that's a little discouraging of breastfeeding. Um, So she's stirred up some controversy. But she says birth person and uses gender neutered language. She's published articles in men's health. And in every single case, she says the word man. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Every single case. It's only happening. Women are the only ones defending themselves again. And something pretty incredible happened recently that I would love to share with you. So, in this change that was happening, it was—it's been growing and growing, and one by one, major organizations that have historically served women have announced they're now switching to this neutered terminology. Um, I said that there was a story about La Leche League in the 50s and I wanted that's going to lead into some of this. In the 1950s, this is beautiful stuff if you look it up. It's incredible. There was a woman in the 50s who was 30 and pregnant and her doctor said, "What do you mean you want to breastfeed? Women don't produce milk at, by the age of 30." And she thought, "Oh heck no, that can't be." So on her own, she started breastfeeding with no support at all in a society that was really pro formula. They were like binding women and doing everything to make them not produce milk. And She found one other woman once at a picnic who was interested in what she was doing, fascinated by the breastfeeding and they became friends and they became two women who breastfed. They ended up becoming seven women who breastfed. And they start, they were these women who just simply got together to talk about their issues, their struggles, they learned together. They produced um, a manuscript called The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding that's been produced for 70 years. It's the book I read when I was pregnant. They traveled the world, and there are photos of them as these young women in their 30s speaking to throngs of women, all women, 100% women in the audience, revering them and admiring them and being grateful to them. Um, Princess Grace credited them for her own breastfeeding journey and wanted to meet them all, so they all went and got to meet her. And... They grew old together. All their husbands died one by one, and they all were still alive, and they all were still known as these original women who created La Leche League. La Leche League is now an international organization that has been fantastic. They have thousands of volunteer instructors supporting women everywhere, volunteer women holding meetings and supporting women. That organization did something pretty remarkable in November that I would like to share with you. Mm-hmm. They put out a post that's included the word chest feeding, which enraged a lot of women. And my community, like on Down to Birth Show, a lot of them started sending us this, look at what La Leche League is doing. Mm. Well, those women started commenting, and I have screenshots that some of them shared with me. They started commenting um, to 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 dissent, to say, like, why are you doing this? Why are you saying, this isn't correct, and it isn't true. The response from La Leche League was to Uh, delete the comment, and block the women. And in a single day, one single day, I believe it was November 5th, one single day, dozens, if not over 100 women, emailed me with evidence, and they would say, I got blocked in four minutes. I got blocked within 10 minutes. They just had someone at La Leche League deleting their comments and blocking them. I want to read you a couple of these comments that got these women blocked, these women who need La Leche League, these women who appreciate the services. One of them says, will you please explain why you are using the term chest feeding and now removing the word womanly from the book, The Woman, The Art of Breastfeeding. And in fact, that's true. They've been publishing this book for 70 years. The new book is coming out and they took out the word womanly. Wow. Why? Because it's apparently offensive. Mm-hmm. So it's now going to be called The Art of Breastfeeding. And I'm thinking, well, they're going to run into a real problem when they try to figure out how to take out the word breastfeeding because that's in the title too. Yeah. So she said, "Will will you please explain why? Um, here's another one to say, I'm so disappointed to see an organization that I thought I cared about empowering women to breastfeed now go and block the same women they claim to support. She got blocked. Um, why don't, why don't we use inclusive language when it's needed? Our voices as women aren't being heard. Look at this one. This is my favorite one. I asked them why women were getting blocked and they blocked me. (laughs) here's the thing they could restrict the women you can restrict people on Instagram and they can't comment anymore but to block is another level and speaking of another level Dona the I think the world's biggest doula certification organization they've been on this bandwagon for a long time the exact same thing happened dozens of women maybe one or 200 women spoke up about it on their page they all got blocked and something incredible happened in the instance of one woman this woman shared with us that Donna, and I have the letter here. Donna not only um, blocked her comment, uh, deleted her comment and blocked her, they screenshotted it whoever was on that social media end, they went on her Instagram page and found she's a CBI childbirth educator, a childbirth um, educator from this this certification program called CBI. They screenshotted her opposition to the word birth person and chest feeding. They contacted CBI and they reported her and are seeking to have her certification revoked. And she wrote to us and she said, hey, ladies, I'm shocked by what happened to me today. Dona International searched out my credentials on my Instagram page and took the time to email CBI to file a grievance against me. I could have my certification revoked for this. This I stand by what I say in that comment, and it shocks me that Dona is trying so hard to quench the dissenting, even going to the length of this. And then she got this warning from them saying you're there's a grievance filed against you and you have to come speak to our board. We're having a hearing. This and is they, crazy. It's it's not serving our mission at
0: all. Why is this happening? You know, you pointed out earlier that this isn't happening in men's health. This is happening in women's health.
1: I think about that all the time. My undergraduate degree is in sociology, and I always feel like that guides me a little bit. I mean, I think that. It's easy for people to, when they hear rhetoric enough, they start to believe it. I mean, think about how many times you've heard certain rhetoric. I mean, think about what mental power it took when you heard trans women are women and you had to go, wait a second, hang on, hang on let me get what does clear that on mean? that right trans identifying <laughs> men it's saying trans identifying men are women so yeah. as soon as we give that one thing up and we give up our mind and we agree to something that we know isn't factually true we just know it isn't all bets are off i think what's happening is guilt there's just so much guilt now everyone's like everyone is feeling guilty and if you say to women this isn't kind they believe it i'm convinced the kind are the ones staying honest and clear about this. I'm convinced that none of these movements are serving women or babies, and we desperately need it in this country. I did speak to the head of one international birthing organization. I'm always trying to speak to all of them. I've made appeals to speak to all of them who changed their language. And one of them agreed to meet with me. And the other one promised, and they keep delaying. It's been over a year. But one of them met with me. I got on Zoom with the president, and she brought her co-president, and she confessed to me after i went on a little speech about how much i'm concerned about this change in language and how it's affecting women she became tearful and she said they were threatened mm. she said we were contacted and we were told in the in these words you will change your language or we are doing a twitter storm on you hmm. her response was to say okay okay we'll i'll create a committee i'll do i'll i'll create a committee to evaluate this which right away like they had her there, she should have just said, you know, excuse me. <laughs> like this is our organization. Why are you, why why are you imposing your opinion like this? These, and she, and that's what happened. They were threatened, and she immediately capitulated. She got nervous, yeah. and you can see she feels not at peace with that choice, but she allowed herself to feel coerced. I don't know. I don't have the answers. I it's just these are the things I've seen for
0: sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think that I think that. On, a lot of people might say, okay, it's just words. They're just pronouns. It's just language to be polite. You know, if yes. this makes somebody feel better, why not? So, yeah. you know, why does this change in language? How does this change in language impact women? Well, if – let's look
1: at it this way. If um, – Okay, Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner used to be called Bruce Jenner. That's how we all grew up knowing him. He decided he wants to be called Caitlyn and he wants to be called a woman to be called Caitlyn is. It's it's innocuous, it's a name we can be called any name, but to demand and I'm not saying This is happening in this instance. But for anyone who demands that you believe what they believe, that you say what they want you to say, coercion of speech, coercion of thought, totally like 1984 style. When they demand that, and we say, okay, fine. It's just, it's just fine, fine. Just say, just say she. Okay, there you go. And now men are coming into the girls' locker rooms. Now men are going into public bathroom in a store in how many states how many dozens of states now can men walk in where you might want to send your daughter to run into the bathroom assuming that that's fine this is not what women maybe thought through now look what's happening in prisons I mean when men are getting arrested now and they say what are your what's your gender and pronouns how often now are they saying women and I just shared on my Instagram page it was like a mugshot of this scary looking man and it said she calling this pedophile she she her. I mean, it because those words actually have meaning unlike a name. Yeah. And in in doing that, we are now like why have any sex-based protections at all? All bets are off now. Yeah,
0: exactly. So, what I mean, I think that a lot of women, I've I've heard this from women, I'm sure you've heard this from even more women, you know, women are going into you know, to see a doula, for example, um, and they're getting this gender neutral language. Um, and you know, you mentioned earlier, like, I don't, don't call me a birthing person, right? You know, I don't want to be referred. I don't want, I don't want to refer to breastfeeding as chest feeding, Right. You know, what can we do? What can women do? We're in this situation where it seems like all of these organizations and all of these institutions, which are supposed to be supporting women and their babies, have capitulated to this.
1: There are just two things, I think, are, are happening here. One is if as a birth professional, you're called to use gender neutral language, then you know, I, 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 I have no, no influence, nothing to say there. But I cannot tell you how many birth professionals confide in me and say, but they want us to use this language. And I say, can you remember you went into business for yourself? You've earned mm-hmm. your credential. You, you, you were raised to be an independent, free-thinking woman. And you are. And you've become that. And now you're letting who coerce your thoughts and your language. The other thing that's happening, and this is where things are fair. You know, there's always like a free market. And this is where it's fair. When women are interested in a doula or a midwife and they go to the website, they immediately see if that professional is using gender neutral language or feminine language. And immediately that woman feels a connection or she feels out of rapport and won't contact that person. And that's how this is going to shake out. I, I've i recommended doulas um, who use that language sometimes. Like they end up taking on that language and the clients have come back to me and said, have you seen this on her website? There's no way I'm calling her. And I always feel like, well, that's how this shakes out. We're going to attract the clients we're meant to attract. And that's fine. Like my podcast is for those who resonate with what's meaningful to me. There are podcasts out there that are going to be all over this language and they're serving that population. I don't think we have to enforce and impose a change on everyone. I just think people should be authentic about it. You know, the ones who are saying we didn't want to make this change, but we were pressured That's not okay. Just like, just be authentic. Just trust that you're going to get the right clients. That you're going to feel at peace with yourself. Isn't that important? Like to feel your self respect and feel at peace with yourself. Integrity. Yeah, I mean, why do anything if you're going to throw that away? Yeah. So yeah.
0: Well, thank you for talking to me about all this. This has been super interesting. I think that so many women are going to hear what you have to say and feel really empowered, maybe feel a bit angry. Um, Your podcast, of course, is called Down to Birth. Where can people find you online if they're seeking out your services or to learn more about you, to follow you on social media?
1: Sure. The podcast is Down to Birth. It's available everywhere Um, on Instagram, it's at Down to Birth Show. My own private business is hypnobirthingct.com. Um, we have down to birthshow.com. We're, we're out there. Um, and, you know, I just, I want women to feel at peace with their birth experiences. And so much of that is for them to feel respected and seen and heard. And language is powerful it, because it affects how people think. That's mm-hmm. why it's so powerful. Um, so I just hope women, I hope we can do more in women's health care. Yeah
0: thank you so much
1: thank you so much megan
0: okay take care bye-bye bye i'm megan murphy host of the same drugs thank you for tuning in i produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work this is all me and you the listener If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, subscribing on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca or by donating directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash thesamedrugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.